Our second scripture reading this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 15, beginning with verse 21. Let us listen for and hear God's holy word. Jesus left that place and went away to the district of Tyre and Sidon. Just then, a Canaanite woman from the region came out and started shouting, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is tormented by a demon. But he did not answer her at all. And his disciples came and urged him, saying, Send her away, for she keeps shouting after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. He answered, It's not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. Then Jesus answered her, Woman, great is your faith. Let it be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed instantly. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. May your good news come, O Lord, not only in the word spoken, but in and through the power of your Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Amen. This is not an easy passage. In fact, it's one of those passages that usually sends preachers scrambling for some other text to preach on. But it's a passage that seems to be popping up for me a lot recently. Some of you may remember our study last spring of Walter Brueggemann's book, Interrupting Silence. This was the passage that I was lucky enough to get to teach. I wrestled with it then, and I wrestled with it for a long time again this week, and seriously considered calling in sick on Thursday and telling Meredith I had laryngitis. (laughs) Finally, though, I decided that it must be reappearing in my life for a reason, so I should just suck it up and go ahead with it. Then I remembered a bit of homiletical advice that's been around for a long, long time. A young minister, newly ordained, about to face his first Sunday in the pulpit, frantically called his seminary professor and mentor. What should I preach about, he asked. The wise professor answered, preach about God and preach about 15 minutes. (laughs) So here we go. When we get to this story in Matthew we should know that Jesus has been teaching. And if we've ever heard Jesus teach, you know that his primary way to teach is with parables, the pithy little stories from everyday life that reveal some deeper truth. Like the kingdom of heaven is like a field in which good seed is planted. But when the good wheat begins to grow, there are weeds growing in the field too. Master, Do you want us to go rip out the weeds from your good wheat? No, the master says. Let the weeds and the wheat grow together. All all sorted out at harvest time. Or the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, the smallest of all seeds. But when it's planted and grows, it grows and grows and grows until it's the height of a large weed, about three feet high, so that birds could come and nest in its branches. Some of the disciples asked, do you mean that's us? Because we don't much like being compared to a bunch of weeds. Or 
the kingdom of heaven is like a net cast into the sea. And when it's pulled up, it's full of all kinds of fish and all sorts of other things, creepy, crawly, slimy, inedible things, all mixed in with the fish. God's kingdom is like that. And Peter says, Jesus, what in the world are you talking about? And then, then they take a trip. They go to the northwest, out to the district of Tyre and Sidon, not a good place for religion. One commentator I read this week compared it to a place like Oregon or Washington State, way out on the west coast, with a lot fewer people per capita going to church, much like Oregon, because Oregon, I learned this week, has the least number of per capita churchgoers in the country. Tire and Sidon, we get the picture. So Jesus and the disciples take a trip to the Northwest, but even in a God-forsaken place like Oregon, there's still a few real-life authentic believers, and they finally get to meet Jesus. And they're all gathered around having a little reunion and enjoying being together, And wouldn't you know it, here comes this woman screaming at the top of her lungs about how Jesus must heal her daughter. The real problem with this woman is not that she's disruptive. The real problem is that she's a Canaanite. She's from the coastal region of Syria where strange gods are worshipped and the Jewish ritual laws of cleanliness aren't practiced because they're not known. In other words, she's a Gentile, which is the Jewish name for anyone who's not a Jew, and that makes her both an outsider and an outcast. It's hard to put into words just how much Jews and Gentiles disliked each other. Maybe you remember the old Calvin and Hobbes cartoon in which Calvin forms his own club where he's stupendous man, and no girls are allowed because, as he says, they're yucky and stupid. Well, the relationship between Jews and Gentiles had disintegrated even further than that. Jews referred to Gentiles as dogs and pigs. The Gentiles, in turn, spent the pages of Scripture attempting various ways to kill the Jews off. The disciples had decided by this point that their job was to be the bouncers to protect Jesus from these troublemaking outsiders. And so when they see this woman coming, they urge Jesus to send her away and to do it quickly. Anything to stop her shouting. I don't know about you, but Jesus' response makes me cringe. Look, lady, he says, you need to use your own medical insurance. I haven't come for you people. I've got my hands full with the lost sheep of the house of Israel without getting tangled up with Gentile dogs like you. This is not Jesus' finest moment. Maybe he was tired. Maybe he was distracted. Maybe, like me sometimes, he was just having one of those days and feeling exceedingly grumpy. Throughout the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus has made it clear that his mission is to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, the ones on the inside. This woman is anything but. In fact, she's the consummate outsider a Gentile, and a woman, a double whammy in the first century, no matter how you look at it. Not a lost sheep, but a dog, Jesus says. And it's not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. 
Right there, he does it. He draws the line. He'll go no further. Enough is enough. The doors are closed, locked, and secure. The bank's closed. The doctor's out. Jesus will not waste time and energy on this Gentile woman while his own people go wanting. This is where I draw the line, he states. But this woman refuses to stay on her side. She will not give up. Dog I may be, she says, but even the dogs are allowed to gather up the crumbs that fall under the table. And when she says that, it's like something in Jesus clicks. If you could draw a cartoon of this scene, I think this is where the light bulb appears over Jesus' head. I think this Canaanite woman teaches Jesus something. I think Jesus gets converted. I mean it. I think this is the moment, this moment changes him and his ministry forever. I think this is the moment when Jesus himself finally comes to understand that you cannot draw lines around God's love. He blinks, his anger dissolves, something in him gets rearranged and changed forever. And you can hear it in his voice. Woman, great is your faith. Let it be done for you as you wish. Suddenly, the narrow boundaries he put on God's kingdom disappear. The limits he placed on himself vanish. Jesus is no longer Messiah only to the lost sheep of Israel. Now he's God's chosen redeemer for the whole world, Jews and Gentiles alike, beginning with this Canaanite woman. In Matthew, as I mentioned, this story follows a whole series of strange, convoluted, confusing parables. Most of them are parables about a messy kingdom where weeds pop up out of nowhere, where nets haul in good fish and bad, where the kingdom of God is likened to crabgrass corrupting a perfectly manicured lawn. So I wonder, I wonder if this woman is also a parable. Maybe this isn't a parable that Jesus tells, but a parable that Jesus does. Here, Jesus is out beyond the boundaries. We're not in church here. We're in Oregon, for Pete's sake, and out in the district of Tyre and Sidon. We're not surrounded by nice church folk or the James Park Sunday School class. We're being interrupted by pushy foreigners who need a miracle for her daughter who's sick and who refuses to be kept away by the disciples or by Jesus himself. How do you hear this story? As an insider or as an outsider? Do you identify with the Canaanite woman yelling for help, begging for healing, pleading for mercy? Or do you find yourself, like I sometimes do, watching and wondering why Jesus lets those kind into the kingdom? Matthew's world was defined by insiders and outsiders, by the privileged and the marginalized, by us against them. Many Jews of that day believed that it was their responsibility before God to remain separate and distinct from other people, that it was their duty not to assimilate, their duty to remain us by not associating with them. 
And it's a challenge for churches still today, especially. Lots of congregations take pride in being a friendly church. What that means is that those who are in the congregation experience that church is a warm and caring and friendly place. But the very quality that makes the church so friendly and warm for those on the inside may make it feel like the opposite for those on the outside. I read this week about one church that hired a consultant to help them grow. At the first meeting, the consultant asked, where's the front door to the church? And they all said, well, it's over there. Why is it locked? They said, because it's always locked. Everybody knows that. You need to come in through one of the side doors. Where's the pastor's office, the consultant continued. Oh, it's down there, they said. Well, how would I know that, he asked. Everybody knows where the church office is, and if they don't know, they don't need to be going there. See what I mean? Unconsciously, we form a church around us, around the insiders, and erect all sorts of barriers to entrance. I don't care for a bunch of tasteless signs stuck all over the place is what one church member said at one of my previous churches. I think they detract from the beauty of the building. I think people ought to be silent when they come into church. I think people ought to come to worship dressed respectfully. I think children should be ushered out of the service because they're too distracting. See what I mean? We get so worried about protecting the beauty and the sanctity of the church that we make it less accessible for those on the outside. We get so worried about protecting our comforts on the inside that we close our eyes and our ears to those on the outside who are asking for help or acceptance or justice or mercy or life. If the Canaanite woman could teach Jesus how wide God's mercy can be, then she has something to teach us too about our own blindness and prejudice, about our own assumptions of who's in and who's out, about where we draw the line. The neighbors down the street don't look like us. They don't dress like us. They eat strange food. They don't speak the same language. Where do we draw the line? The corporate merger means layoffs and new faces. That guy got the position that my friend used to have. Where do we draw the line? The school lunchroom divides along social strata. Jocks over here, band kids over there, cheerleaders in one corner, young lifers in the other. Where do we draw the line? Growth brings new residents to the community. They haven't grown up around here. They don't have family here. They don't belong here the way us old timers do. They're changing our town. Where do we draw the line? Who's in? Who's out? Where do you draw the line? Or do you? Jesus says, those who have ears, let them hear. May it be so for each of us. Amen.